Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Crawford Gribben, author of Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest, just published this month by Oxford University Press. Crawford is the professor of early modern history at Queen's University, Belfast, and listeners in the show will recognize him as one of our New Books Network hosts. Crawford, welcome to the show, and it's great to have you. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Well, it's so good to have you. Why don't we get started by having you just tell us a little bit about your career and and how that has led you to work on this book, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Well, I did my PhD back in the late 1990s at University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, which is in Scotland, which is in the UK, uh, just for anyone who's not aware. <laughs> and uh, my, my, my doctoral topic uh, was a project about Puritan views of the end of the world, Puritan millennial views or apocalyptic views. Mm. And um, since then, I've, I've maintained an interest in both those themes, both in the study of Puritanism and in the study of apocalypticism or millennialism. And uh, my interest in the study of millennialism has grown and expanded chronologically over the years so that I've become actually quite interested in um, modern American expressions of millennial or apocalyptic theory. Uh, A number of years ago when Left Behind was a, when the Left Behind novels were a big thing in popular culture, um, re- uh, listeners might remember they sold about 65 million copies um, Nicolas Cage appeared in one of the movies based on one of the books and so on um, I, I wrote a couple of uh, books about that phenomenon uh, and that, that phenomenon is a, 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 I suppose represents a, a tendency or a habit of mind within large parts of American evangelical culture that's geared very much towards um, both escaping the tensions of late modernity through an event called the rapture in which uh, believers are um, uh, t- taken up to heaven t- to avoid a period of, of persecution known as the tribulation in which the Antichrist rises to power uh, and so on. So it, it represents both a, a way of thinking about how to escape from, from those difficulties, but also represents paradoxically a, a very committed political position um, in that uh, Believers who imbibe those kinds of values through through Left Behind and other pop culture products like it are, often have a very positive view of the United States or or a very pronounced view of what uh, foreign policy ought to be, mm. especially the Middle East coming out of those kinds of prophetic uh, convictions. So I, I I've remained interested, as I say, in in modern American. Um, evangelical culture, especially as it thinks about issues to do with apocalyptic uh, or millennial belief. And so in the present project, I wanted to look at the flip side of that. So far from being escapists, even if that's an appropriate way to describe 
people who imbibe the left behind theology. Um, the, the, the people that I write about in this book, uh, they, they are committed to enduring, they, they expect to endure whatever difficulties are coming uh, upon either the earth in general or North America in particular. Uh, they're committed to surviving those kinds of tribulations in almost every respect. They expect they will. And also they expect to rebuild something glorious on the other side of the, the short-term, mid-term um, difficulties that are coming their way. So if the Left Behind novels and that prophetic uh, tradition is what we might call pre-millennial, the, the people I'm writing about in this book are mostly post-millennial. In other words, they expect that they have a responsibility given to them by Jesus Christ to, sh to change the world in advance of his second coming. And uh, in almost every respect, the people I spoke to um, who, who were Christians, who were evangelical Christians, uh, did share that perspective and did think that in their little communities, um, sometimes much larger communities in the Pacific Northwest or in the inland Northwest, um, they were actually preparing the way for the kinds of America that would be born anew on the other side of this great apocalyptic cultural contest. Fascinating, Crawford. So uh, I wonder if you can just give us a sense on who, who are the subjects of this study, maybe uh, some of the key players, some of the key people or, or institutions who are making up this, this group of post-millennial survivalists. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, Ryan, because there's a huge range of, of people involved in this book. Um, there are some very, very big communities. There are other much smaller groups uh, with much more porous boundaries. And there's a host of small families or even individuals. Um, what, what I'm mainly interested in this book is, is tracing a migration movement that's taking um, American citizens and sometimes Europeans and people from elsewhere in the world into this very particular part of, of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I'm principally interested in areas in North Idaho. Um, and in that, in, in that area, you know, we're talking about um, families, individual families, for example, um, one of whom I met that had moved there from France, or small congregations, including a congregation I was in touch with, that moved en masse from um, upstate New York uh, to move as a community to, to North Idaho, uh, where they felt the air was much freer and so on, uh, or indeed... Um, moving slightly outside the, the religious parameters of, of this community, others who identify with much of the discussion about liberty or, um, or, or even libertarianism, who are maybe more associated with paramilitary or militia cultures. Uh, but, but fundamentally, the, the two biggest um, the, the two biggest spokesmen, I suppose, for, um, for, for this migration movement are, on the one hand, James Wesley Rawls, who... Um, is, is well known in um, survivalist circles as the editor of a blog uh, called survivalblog.com, a blog that gets hundreds of thousands of hits uh, every month. Um, James Wesley Rawls is a, 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 a well-known author of novels and also preparedness manuals. Uh, so in his, both in his novels and his manuals, he, he charts the same kind of idea of an American descent into chaos. It might be environmental or cultural or financial chaos, uh, but but through that chaos, uh, a small number of prepared people um, realise what's going on and uh, act on on their own initiative and, and move generally to this part uh, of of the northwest in, into the North Idaho area. 
Um, so that's that's James Wesley Rawls and Survival Blog. And the other community, which actually features in Rawls's work, is a community led by a man called Douglas Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, which exists. If, for, for all that exists in Rawls's fiction, it also exists in reality. Um, <laughs> and th- th- this community in Moscow, Idaho, a community of, of conservative Presbyterians um, under Doug Wilson's leadership was founded, I think, in the late 1970s. It gradually um, took on a very distinctive denominational or theological flavour. It was always very engaged with the arts, took inspiration as much from C.S. Lewis as John Calvin. And uh, that community has grown uh, uh, in very considerable ways um, to um, have a a very successful publishing house, uh, a liberal arts college, which does some very, very high quality teaching, a music conservatory, um, best-selling authors publishing with Simon & Schuster, um, Random House, Oxford University Press, you name it, uh, and all of this within a community of 2,000 people. But this community of 2,000 people now has massive cultural range across North American evangelicalism. Um, Doug Wilson and others within that community are very prolific authors. Uh, They're very entrepreneurial in in the way that they frame their activity. And uh, they have also been active in promoting their work, for example, on Amazon Prime where Doug Wilson and others have been involved in hosting uh, a kind of a, a a chat show, I suppose you would say, called Man Rampant since 2019, where they've been discussing a range of, of topical and theological issues. So, you know, it, it, one of the difficulties in answering your question is knowing how many people are involved in this migration. Yeah. And the, when, we, when, when my friend Scott Spurlock and I, when we travelled through this area, and did a lot of the interviews, we we, we really struggled to, to put a number on how many people had moved up because, of course, there's a huge movement into Idaho in particular and noticed in one of the local newspapers last week, um, house prices in Boise are among the fastest growing anywhere in the country. So, you know, there's a, there's a massive movement into this area. The difficulty, I think, uh, for this book is identifying how many of those are moving with particularly religious concerns or to fulfil some kind of particularly religious vision. And um, and also to identify how many of them are moving into the areas in North Idaho that James Wesley Rawls' blog recommends as excellent sites to survive and resist the crisis that's coming on North American evangelicalism. But certainly large numbers of those people are moving into Moscow. Beautiful little town, little kind of democratic island in the middle of quite a red state, very arty, very alternative, and then right in the heart of it, and I mean literally right in the heart of the town, um, you have the New St Andrews uh, College, which is the liberal arts college. This community um, sponsors and operates. Um, that that really projects a very different view of what society ought to look like. Crawford, you you have this map early on in the book of of what you call the American Redoubt. If I'm saying that correctly, I don't know if it's re- Redoubt or Redoubt, but um, this is a a, a term that maybe many of us aren't familiar with what what is what's the origin of this particular location and and how did this migration uh towards this particular area become so popular among this group of conservative uh religious uh migrants yeah thanks Ryan well the 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 idea of a redo or a redoubt uh, as um, English speakers put it uh, is, is is an idea that's been promoted by James Wesley Rawls so this is very much his idea and the, the map that that's that appears there just after the preface 
is a map which includes uh, the states of Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and eastern parts of Washington and Oregon. That's, that is the American redoubt, as James Wesley Rawls sees it. That's the part of the United States where traditional culture will is, is most likely to be preserved as the, the coast descend into some form of chaos and as other things happen in the south. So for, as far as he's concerned, that is the defensible fortress mm. of traditional American culture, the, the idea of the redoubt. Um, so the... Um, I mean, the, the interest in moving to this area obviously predates this particular migration movement. Um, you can go back into the 1980s uh, and um, there's some rather unfortunate uh, comparisons with uh, neo-Nazis that were moving into this area, particularly around Hayden Lake, um, just north of Coeur uh, in North Idaho, where, where they had uh, you know, c- quite a well-known uh, compound that was visited by Louis Thoreau and, and other filmmakers. Um, and actually, you know, once you begin to read some of the ethnography about that movement, it, it makes you realise that there was many informants and anthropologists and political scientists among the people who gathered with the Hayden Lake neo-Nazis as there were committed neo-Nazis. So yeah. it was it was a, a very, very, um, dis, um, how, how would you say, it was a movement that, didn't, that, that had very permeable borders, put it that way, sure. um, and, and a huge, a huge kind of floating population of observers as well as um, committed people. Hayden Lake, neo-Nazis uh, were associated uh, with various kinds of terrorist outrages, murders, extortion, and so forth. Um, and, so, and that came to nothing. Then you can go back a little bit further um, and, uh, you know, you, you look at various intentional communities that set up in that area, um, both um, the world's largest mail-order religious business was based in Moscow back in the 1920s. Um, but but even if you go further back into the 19th century, you know, the, the, this was very much a, a place where people migrated. It was a frontier place, but it was also a place of, of religious freedom. And, you know, th- this part of the world still has that, that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very strongly libertarian. Self-sufficiency is a big deal. Homeschooling is very common. Home churching uh, is growing uh, too. And I, I suppose that that long, long established impulse of moving towards this part of the world is something that James Wesley Rawls has picked up on. Um, obviously, he, he has nothing to do with the racist politics um, or religious whackery of, of some of the earlier movements that were interested in moving into this area. But he's interested in the idea of a migration movement to this area uh, as an idea in itself. And he's promoted it very heavily in his books uh, and also in his, in his website. And um, I think it's a very happy coincidence, as far as he's concerned, that right at the centre of this American redoubt, there is this very flourishing community in Moscow, Idaho, that shows exactly how religious conservatives can move en masse into this very location and not just survive, but thrive hmm. in terms of promoting their ideas, um, moving from very humble, very small, humble beginnings to create a, a national network of classical Christian schools, a liberal arts college, a music conservatory, you know, best-selling authors with Penguin, Simon Schuster, you name it. Uh, and, and all of that being done from, you know, this rather obscure um, part of the world in, in, in North Idaho. You know, Crawford, you've you've talked about your interest in the the popular evangelical eschatology as popularized by the Left Behind series, and you and you've told us how this particular group of of post millennialists um, 
are, are very much a minority in the mainstream view of, of the end times among American Christians. But, but that hasn't necessarily always been the case. There was a point where post-millennialism was, was certainly more uh, popular in America, but it, it became overshadowed by this premillennial dispensational theology. Who, who were the key players in, in re, re-promoting or, or retrieving this post-millennialism during the, the 20th century? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, Ryan. You're, you're right that really from Plymouth Rock until about the end of the Civil Wars, uh, the Civil War, um, American Protestantism was, was more or less dominated by this post-millennial vision. Um, of course, it's written into such basic cultural themes in North America as as manifest destiny and all kinds of other things um, re- reflect this overwhelming assumption that Protestants came to the new world to transform it and and from that world, fr- 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 from that new location to see the world itself transformed. So if you move into the 1730s, 1740s, um, looking at someone like Jonathan Edwards, for example, um, you can see someone there who's who's living through a period of very dramatic religious revival, and he believes that this might in fact be the beginning of the long prophesied millennium, um, so that it would begin on American soil, but ultimately transform the earth. And that 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 celebration of American Christianity breeds a kind of um, complacency, I suppose you might say, um, through the middle of the 19th century. But that complacency is is broken down almost entirely by the events of the Civil War, in which more um, American soldiers die than in every other conflict that military has engaged in combined. So, you know, it's, it's a really devastating conflict. And in the aftermath of that conflict, um, there, there's a real crisis of confidence among American Protestants about this post-millennial vision. And so increasingly they take up this much more pessimistic view that um, seems to make much better sense of the circumstances in which they live. Um, so they, they, they move towards this pre-millennial view. They think that um, as the end of time approaches, um, social conditions will become worse and worse. Uh, and eventually the church will escape them in an event known as the rapture, after which the really terrible things happen. And that view gets popularized, of course, um, by the the rise of fundamentalism in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, It's disseminated most widely through the Schofield Reference Bible, first published in 1909, second edition in 1917. And, you know, for the first half of the 20th century, um, that particular premillennial view really dominates any conservative um, any conservative evangelical culture in the United States. And of course, it's confirmed by events like the, the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, which, although premillennials were futurists and who said, you know, all of, all of these prophetic events will not be fulfilled until the rapture happens, with the founding of the State of Israel, it's too good an opportunity to miss from any of these people. So they actually put, pull back from that and say, well, in fact, the founding of the State of Israel is, is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of prophecy that actually guarantees that everything else that we're saying is accurate too. One of the most celebrated um, prophetic writers who made that kind of argument was a man called Hal Lindsey, who wrote a book in, I think, 1970 called The Late Great Planet Earth. Hal Lindsey was working with Christian hippies. He ran a kind of a Christian hippie house, um, Jesus People House in, uh, in, in California, in Los Angeles. And... Uh, in the early 1970s, he was bringing speakers in to try to um, help his 60 or 70 
um, the 60 or 70 members of his community to grow intellectually in their faith. And one of the one of the speakers who came to visit the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse, which was the name of this Christian hippie, uh, organization that Hal Lindsay was involved in. One of the, the speakers who came to visit it in the early 1970s was a man called R.J. Rushdoony. Now, R.J. Rushdoony um, was a very, very serious thinker uh, from the American Presbyterian tradition, but he had a completely different view of what the future would hold than did Hal Lindsay. So if Hal Lindsay was the most prominent um, popular dispensational writer of the 1970s, R.J. Rushdoony was exactly the opposite. He was going to become the most significant proponent of post-millennial theology. Now, Hal Lindsay, in his writing, lampooned post-millennialism as bound up with theological liberalism and kind of soft views of politics and so forth. Arjuris Dooney was the complete antithesis of that too. Um, he was a very serious theologian, deeply committed to the Presbyterian tradition. Um, and in terms of politics, he, had, he was already a very experienced political writer and activist who had been associated with the Volcker Fund, Volcker Charitable Fund in the 1960s, kind of a libertarian organisation, but it quickly moved out of that to establish his own think tank, the Chalcedon Foundation in the, the 1960s. And as America went through all the tumult of the later 1960s and early 1970s, Rushdoony was working quietly away, developing a completely new view of what the Christian responsibility to society ought to be. Um, Rushduni came from an Armenian background. His, his parents had fled from Armenia. In fact, they had survived the Armenian genocide back uh, in the early uh, 20th century. And R.G. Rushduni determined that no similar fate should happen to American Christians. And so he, he wanted to equip American Christians as effectively as he could with the intellectual tools by which they could critique the society around them and understand its destination. Like Hal Lindsay, Rushdoony also expected um, a, 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 a civilization or, or, or cultural collapse in the short to medium term. Hal Lindsay believed that that collapse would lead to the rapture. Um, and and then the transformation of the heavens and well but and then to the millennium and the transformations of the heavens and the earth. Rushduni didn't see it that way. Rushduni understood that the collapse that he also predicted to be imminent would lead to a period of unspecified time that would be a period of extreme difficulty for American Christians. And actually, one of the difficulties that Rushduni anticipated they would face would be the difficulty of coming to terms with the fact that premillennialism was wrong and that everything they'd been taught about the future was wrong, so that they haven't been raptured. In fact, they're, they're stuck on earth when everything is literally falling apart around them. But Rushduni wanted believers facing that kind of situation to know how to respond to it, not with panic or fear, but having prepared properly for it, um, having, you know, be, being part of uh, very strong family units, being part of credible uh, congregational communities, uh, and having the intellectual tools to understand the civilizational collapse and then to plan and work for the new world that believers would create in the aftermath of that collapse. So, you know, the, the, the Rushdoony's post-millennialism is not some kind of Pollyanna-ish um, expectation that society will move through ever-increasing degrees of glory. I think that that was the kind of view that was typical before the American Civil War. 
but Rashtunis is a tempered post-millennialism that recognises the reality of radical um, cultural reversals in the short to medium term, but expresses also the confidence that that is not the American future. That's not the Christian future. The Christian future is one in which believers will respond to these short-term reversals of the societies in which they live, understanding that that is merely the logical conclusion of where those societies were going as they worked out the first principles of their worldview. And actually, Rushduni was arguing then that Christians, if they were properly prepared to understand what was happening around them, would, would not panic when they see culture collapse around them, but actually understand that this was, in fact, an inevitable consequence of their um, ideas thinking, and that a, a new world, that the new world that followed would be a world that would be shaped by a Christian um, worldview. Now, in Rushduni's mind, one of the things that made Rushduni's post-millennialism very distinctive was that he predicted that when Christians did emerge out of that short to medium term cultural reversal, they would work to build an America that was not religiously neutral, but would be a confessionally Christian state. Hmm. And also that they would look to the, the social organization of Old Testament Israel as a blueprint for what that state should look like. Now, some of the things that, that Rushdini said, you know, would sound maybe a little bit wooly um, or a little bit liberal uh, in, in, in some evangelical context today. So, for example, he argued for very low taxation, 10% maximum, on the basis that the state should never expect more from its citizens than God did. Uh, and he only ever imposed a tithe. He also argued that, for example, the prison system should be abolished and that with the exception of some very notorious crimes, everyone else should be re rehabilitated through some form of community service. So that, that sounds, you know, in, in a way, quite a progressive position to take. But then <laughs> you, you sort of read on in his work and you realise what what that was premised upon, that that claim was premised upon a massive extension in the crimes for which capital punishment would be uh, a, 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 the state's response. Um, and in fact, he takes the first 10 of the seven commandments, so, so the first seven of the 10 commandments, uh, and, and recognises that just as uh, the, the, the legislation in Moses, that, that Moses put together, or uh, that Moses received from God, as Rushdini would put it, um, J just as that legislation required that those crimes be understood to be capital crimes, so too would the future America understand that idolatry, blasphemy, um, adultery, um, breaking the Sabbath, failing to, failing to respect your parents, all of these things would become capital crimes too. Wow. So it's a very distinctive, very distinctive form of post-millennialism. Uh, and that, in a much more moderated way, I think is what's bubbling away um, under the surface of the movement we're talking about. Crawford, what you're describing um, obviously has all these political implications, but as you've been describing this, there seems to be a, a very significant difference between the way this group of Christians are seeking to engage with politics and, and perhaps compared with the way that the more uh, mainstream American evangelical movement, uh, if, you, if you were to think of, say, the moral majority... Um, has tried to take um, a very different kind of approach to changing American politics. Could, could you talk a little bit about the the grassroots versus top-down um, nature of of political transformation um, between yeah. those groups? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're right, Ryan. Traditionally, American evangelicals have adopted political strategies that work for social change from the top down. So, you know, the moral majority uh, from the 1980s onwards was, you know, was strategizing in the hope that its leaders would be able to get a man in the White House. And I think the gendered language there might not be an accident. Hmm. Uh, but but if, if they could get their man in the White House, they thought they could really begin to turn around the direction of American society. Um, and, you know, when we think about evangelical influence in politics, for example, through Donald Trump and the so-called court evangelicals that surround him, uh, there is, I think, this enduring expectation that when conservative Protestants um, set out to to change the culture, they want to use political tools to do so. Well, I think one of the really interesting things about the groups that we're talking about uh, in this book is that they have a completely different view of what polit- political um, agency ought to look like. And very early on, really from the 1980s onwards, early 1990s onwards, e- you know, e- even when that moral majority programme was at its most ambitious they stepped back from politics um, altogether and t- took the view that Republicans and Democrats were not really two different kinds of things. They were one kind of thing moving at two different kinds of speeds. So, they, they, you know, they, they understood that politics was in a way following culture, that politics came downstream from culture. And they also recognize, I think, because of their, their post-millennial vision and because of their very strong in- emphasis upon the life and work of the church, they also recognize that, um, th- th- that th- th- the transformation of the world was not necessarily something they had to push for on their own initiative or through their own energy. Um, they would argue that that had already been achieved or, or the right to that had been achieved through the work of Christ and all that believers had to do um, um, as members of the church was to engage faithfully in Christian living and that the transformation of the world would occur not through some kind of clever political strategy or marketing gimmick, but actually just through preaching prayer and the sacramental life of the church. And as Christians went about their ordinary everyday life, they would begin to see changes in themselves as individuals and their families, then in their localities, then in their counties, then in their states, and only ultimately at the level of federal government. So this was the complete opposite of the moral majority vision of high politics. This was very low politics. Um, and it was a kind of political vision that, ste- that, that stood very much at a critical distance from the cut and thrust of American political life arguing that Christians really should have very little to do, in fact, perhaps even have nothing to do with um, with Democrats, uh, with, with the Democratic or Republican parties, but instead should vote only for godly candidates, believing that if all Christians, their number being very significant in the United States, if all Christians did in fact only vote for godly candidates, they wouldn't need any more to have discussions about supporting, or whether, whether it's right to support the lesser of two evils, you know, they recognize very early on that if you're always voting for the lesser of two evils, you're always ensuring that what you regard as evil gets in power. So they stepped apart from that. They stepped apart from high level politics and instead promoted the reconstruction of the individual, the family, the locality, the county, then the state, and then um, ultimately uh, the, the, the federal government itself. I suppose one of the ironies about this strategy is that these communities of, if you like, non or apolitical dissenters are, are growing in power, influence, and number 
um, at precisely the moment, you might say, when the, the much more conservative view of religious politics is also gaining power. So, you know, I, I don't think they could perhaps ever have imagined when this project started that the Supreme Court of the United States could look the way that it does today in terms of its composition. Now, we might have another com- conversation about whether its composition is actually likely to be um, reflected in, in the decisions it comes to, and that's a, you know, that's a fair enough comment. Um, but certainly if you were to listen to some of the more alarmist discussions of the last couple of appointments to the Supreme Court, um, you would you, you would be expecting that the, the kind of communities that we're talking about here um, might be a little bit more pessimistic uh, about the current condition of America than would be absolutely warranted. Hmm. Crawford, you, you've talked a little bit about the the strategies of this group of, of Christian Reconstructionists, at least especially more recently, in, in promoting their vision of, of a, a Christianized society using this, the two strategies of, of education and media. I'm wondering if you could just briefly share some some of the ways that their approach to to education to media has is different again from the from the mainstream uh, American Protestant evangelical approach which maybe has had a tendency to to take a least common denominator approach but there there seems to be something very different and and distinctly uh, theological or confessional in the literature that you've noted. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Well, I think that's true. I think that both in education and in their media strategies, the people involved in this in, in this sequence of communities, overlapping series of communities, um, do have distinctive things to say uh, and also say them in very distinctive ways. So in terms of education and media, uh, the community that's based in Moscow, Idaho, for example, has long promoted a kind of do-it-yourself strategy. Uh, in terms of education, they were um, very prolific back in the um, 90s, um, before the, the big, big boom in uh, religious homeschooling in America. There's currently, I think, around, I think there's an estimate between somewhere between two and three million or children are being homeschooled in the United States. But but these, this community was was pushing for Christian education, either in homeschooling or indeed in Christian schools, long before that big boom ever took place. And to support that, to support the promotion of Christian education, the community then began to organise publications that were textbooks or curricula that could be rolled out to promote this very distinctive way of thinking about um, child nurture um, with this, um, um, uh, it's hard to describe, but it's, it's quite a distinctive Presbyterian view of how you bring children up in the faith. You, you presuppose that they're going to be believers and, and you educate them on, on that basis, which is a very different view of childhood than that shared by most American evangelicals, but that's a separate conversation. Um, but nevertheless, um, there's a there's very strong um, commitment to, to arts, um, to creativity, um, and, and, and to writing, uh, both fiction and non-fiction. And all of that really comes out of, of this view of education, a very holistic view of preparing the whole person um, for education. It's very non-utilitarian. You know, from my perspective as someone who who's worked for a long time in arts and humanities, there's there's a lot to to really admire about this. It's it's very non-pragmatic. Um, it, it's non-utilitarian. Um, it, it's a, a commitment to education of the whole person, um, not just in terms of science, um, literacy, mathematics, and so on, but also in terms of 
of the creative impulse that they seek to nurture. And so the, the, the educational goals then, I think, fed into the media strategies that they also developed. So instead of, um, instead of going with their books to the kind of typical Christian publishers, Moody or you know, whoever it happened to be, they very quickly decided early on to publish their own. Um, so they set up a, a press, Canon Press began to publish their own work. Um, of course, questions can be asked about that about quality control and so on, if everything's happening in-house, um, wh what checks and balances are there to make sure only the best products are going out. And there have been various issues over the years um, about uh, about quality control issues or, or, or even plagiarism issues, accusations that have been raised at various times. But this, I mean, this, this media, it, it, it's, you know, for, for all that this media seems marginal, seems small, um, people from this background who have, developed their gifts or their skills within a church community that's essentially a coterie of writers or creative practitioners. They've gone on to write books. For example, um, Doug Wilson wrote a book with Christopher Hitchens, the very famous journalist, um, which um, came out of a lecture tour that they did together or contributed to a lecture tour they did together. Others have gone on to publish books with Random House, you know, with Oxford University Press, uh, you know, th th this has become a very, very successful literary community, you know, a genuine literary community. Much of that made successful through a magazine um, that began to be published in the late 1980s, continues to be published today called Credenda Agenda, title means things to believe, things to do. Um, an in-house magazine made possible by early desktop publishing software, uh, but which, which you know, in the late 1990s had a free circulation of 22,000 globally, which I think goes to show you, even by that stage, the financial power that this community had. And it was through the wide distribution of that magazine that so many people from across the United States, and even, as I said, far beyond, found themselves attracted to this idealised view of what life in this rich, culturally, creatively rich, confessionally rich, theologically rich Christian community might look like. And, and that's very much what, what, what drew them there. It's fascinating, Crawford. Well, you've been so kind to come and talk with us about uh, your book, which we've, I feel, only scratched the surface of, so people can go out and get their copy of Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, which is available now. Um, but since you finished this project... What are you working on at the moment? Well, thanks, Ryan. I've got another book coming out in the summer called, it's a little bit different. It's called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. So St. Patrick's Day is coming up, probably just passed by the time this gets published. But, you know, if you know if that's whetted your appetite for all things Irish, you can look out for that <laughs> book, The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, hopefully coming out at the end of August. And that's a book that talks about, as its title suggests, everything from the Christian conversion of Ireland under Patrick and his associates all the way through to the collapse of the Catholic Church in the last 10 years and uh, the um, explosion of secular thinking since. That's great, Crawford. Well, we've been talking to Crawford Gribben, author of Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest, just published by Oxford University Press. Crawford, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate it. And thanks for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to like and subscribe. But of course, the most important thing is if you can think of anyone who might find this episode interesting, go ahead and send them the link. That's the best way to share the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.